Good evening and welcome to another episode of Nigeria Politics Weekly. As usual, I am Michael and co-hosting with me is Phoenix. Today we have two guests. Our first guest is Samuel. Samuel. Samuel is a public policy analyst with the International Budget Partnership. And our second guest is Omoboy. Omoboy is a management consultant and former special advisor to the Irish Minister for Justice. Now, the three topics we'll be discussing today are firstly, the NNPC, Nigeria National Petroleum Corporation, has published their accounts and the financial information disclosed has caused a lot of debate on social media and in the traditional media as well. Secondly, we'll be discussing the value added tax dispute that is still raging on between the states in Nigeria and the federal government. And thirdly, we'll be discussing the end SARS protests. A forensic report has been released that seems to indicate that the Nigerian army was culpable in the killings of unarmed Nigerian citizens. But to our first topic, NMPC's accounts finally published. On Phoenix, we discussed this, I think about two or three weeks ago, and then we hadn't seen the figures. And now they've been published, there've been a lot of debate on social media as to whether or not uh, the NMPC misled Nigerians. So in your view, can, can you summarize what the issues are? Because for those of us who are non-accountants, we can't quite follow the debate, Phoenix. Thanks, Michael. Um, hi, Riloma boy, and uh, Tiku, thanks for joining us uh, on this episode. And hello, listeners. Um, I, I think, I mean, if, if I was to answer the question, um, of course, for me, there, there, is, there has been some misleading. Uh, and, and we alluded to that when we discussed this. I mean, we alluded to the possibility of that when we discussed this uh, two or three weeks ago. Why? Because the economic indices did not point to a possibility of um, the NNPC declaring a profit. I mean, in, in, in years past, when they had had a better economic outcome, when I say economic outcome, I'm particularly referring to um, the price of oil, the ability to, to sell more and, and therefore have that more positive outlook, they hadn't declared a profit. So how would it be possible for you to declare a profit in a year where we had a pandemic, where all prices were depressed, where, and, and all of that had happened. So clearly there, 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 there was, I mean, there were pointers to the, the likelihood of there being some financial engineering in being able to come up with what they called a profit. So of course, I mean, most people we're waiting for the results to be published, and then we'll be able to look at the tail of the tape and, and see what happened. And, and as it were, I mean, it, it bore um, evidence of what we what I expected. One, you could clearly see that their top line, i.e. their revenue, was depressed from 2019 by 25%. So <laughs> one, you, lo you lost that much revenue but your cost of sales did not reduce significantly. It was almost the same. Which tells me that, which points to the depressed oil prices. So you are still said you are still, you know, doing the same volume of business, but because oil prices were significantly lower, your revenue was lower, which meant that the, your, even your gross profit, the very first line of profit that you made, 
was already showing that there was no way you could have declared it. Uh, you couldn't even declare an operating profit, which is from the core business you're doing, i.e. I sold this much, I, it cost me this much to sell it, and then my general expenses, which is, you know, paying my staff, paying, you know, paying stuff, you were clearly in the red. Then it becomes interesting, and you then see how they managed to declare a profit by two lines. The first line was talking about the reversal of impairments um, from the past. The second line was other income that they were declaring for that particular year. Now, if you look back historically, you could see a sharp rise in other income, which, which was therefore sending a message that something funny was happening there. And by the time you look at the uh, impairments that they said that they had reversed, which was about 700 billion, they were saying essentially that monies that they had spent on behalf of the Federation um, that had been seen as bad debt and written off in previous years, all of a sudden they had received or been able to recover part of that money from the Federation, which is hilarious to me because the same Federation that we know is struggling, that is unable to balance its budget, that has significant deficits. You are telling us that money that you had written off that you could never get back from them, all of a sudden they gave you back. Then you look at their other income, and again, there are three lines that you see there. I mean, there's something called sundry income, there is refund from federation, there's variation in crude stock. I mean, you only have to go and look at the notes and you just see this guy is very funny. So for me, once, once one had looked at that and seen that swing of about 1.3 trillion Naira that had suddenly made them go from clearly um, a, a negative outcome, a loss into a 287 billion Naira profit. The next thing that just came to me was why? And I'd be interested to hear, I mean, I think we'll talk about this because I mean, he's usually plugged in and I, I, my, my question was, why did you go through this much wahala to show a profit, to make a song and dance about it? Especially when you know that when people start combing through your books, it will become apparent that you're not make, you're not even making an operating profit, so you're a loss-making organization. But some of these things that you're doing do not do not speak to good corporate governance. So why why did, why go through more trouble? What are they planning to do that requires them to you know try to show a positive outlook on the NNPC? Yes, we know that the PIA has just been signed. Is this some preparatory work to? you know, um, going public or were they trying to raise some debts? I mean, so for me, that's the intriguing part as to why go to this lens uh, to do something very hilarious as this. And uh, I mean, that's, that's really where the discussion should be going. Thank you, Phoenix. Um, Samo, I, I, I presume you, you were listening to uh, Phoenix. The, I have two questions. The first is, do you agree that, or with Phoenix, Phoenix's view that the accounts are not accurate? And secondly, are you able to answer his question, which is, if it's true that the accounts are not accurate, why do they have to go through this level of, of financial jiggery-pokery to try to present these results? Samuel. 
Yeah, it's. Um, I think Finley's actually did lay out what you find in the book, and then looking closely at the book, I think it's um, its submission is something you cannot dispute. I think it's even very conservative, given the fact that it's speaking directly to the fact, meaning that it's not even coming from uh, the political, economic perspective of why they would do what they are doing. Uh, just to build on your question, uh, one. Um, why would a corporation that we know essentially the lack, I'll call it the, the lack they know how, historically this organization has been known to be a problem. The, gov the government itself admitted in numerous audit reports, all you need to do is to go to Naiti's website and then try to read through the audit report for the past 10 years. Every single year, you have indictment on this same corporation. And so what Phoenix is actually saying there, it's clear to everybody to know that this organization, of course, had failed the simple test, uh, which no other public corporation will be allowed to. If you try that, remember, first bank, ordinary um, appointment of, um, how would you call it now? They are trying to appoint a new MG, no MG, and then before you know it, the entire board was sacked. Now, NMPC had done worst, and of course, nobody cares. Of course, because again, the supervising minister of that corporation happens to be the president himself. That said, if you dive deep into the notes of NMPC, and then I think one shocking thing there is you look at the operations of the refinery. Re remember, NMPC itself, it's, about, it's, it's the custodian, people should get this. One, NMPC play in the upstream sector. Essentially, they work with partners to actually pull out crude from the soil. And then they take some part of that and they try to sell it. They also have a downstream sector. Well, depending on who you talk to the mainstream sector, using pipes to actually take those crude oils to refineries. Then they have, of course, the downstream sector, turning those crude oil, of course, certainly into refined products uh, that they can now sell to, again, through a network of um, transportation infrastructure. Me and you know, everybody understands that the infrastructure, the transportation infrastructure of NMPC is a big problem. In fact, I wonder why some state government will allow it to continue. Most of their pipes are actually becoming a big issue. Uh, I mean, killing, killing many people, of course, without consequences. Uh, the refineries, of course, if you read the audit report itself, all the old refineries, none of them seems to be working. They've never been working, and they, I don't think they will work. It's not that I'm being prophetic. I think it has never worked. And in the future, I don't see them working. Um, it's, not, it's not as if you're being uh, sarcastic. I mean, that's the fact. That's the second thing. Uh, in terms of their upstream sector, if you look closely at the news, you notice that most organizations, most IOCs are technically pulling out of Nigeria. Now, you don't pull out of a profitable venture. The reason is because they are rigid with a lot of costs. And these costs are actually very clear to everybody to see. Um, the price of crude oil and the associated costs of producing and maintaining, of course, the political system that we run in Nigeria that most IOC will have to align with, seems to have actually eat deep into profitability. So everybody seems to be running off. 
Now, then the, the, then the PIB came in, the golden bullet that will fix everything. So to make everything look fantastic, they were looking for positive news uh, to sell to the IMF, the World Bank, and then mo most likely also people that are actually looking to, how will I put it now? People that were, I mean, they were hoping that maybe one way or the other, they would borrow them more money, uh, which seems to be the fiscal direction that the president and his team seems to be following. So they were just looking and scrabbling for news. So one of the key news that they could throw into the atmosphere uh, was to announce to the world that NMPC is profitable. We know that NMPC cannot be profitable. Any profitability, and just for the public, uh, people that may struggle with accounting. In accounting, there are actual expenditure and there are actually arbitrary expenditure. If I say my car is depreciating, it has depreciated by 400,000. In accounting, you remove it from your, of course, if I make a profit of uh, say 1 million and I say my car is depreciated by 1 million, essentially at the end of the day, I make absolutely no profit because that depreciation, which is arbitrary in nature, goes off with our accounting system. The same thing happens with profit. Profit doesn't mean money. I can actually even design and uh, what thing is called financial engineering. It's pure financial engineering. I can actually sit down and make my book look good. I will just add up some, and that's essentially what the NMPC have done. Just to close this, uh, so that I don't overstretch this, if we go back and we look closely at that, I mean, at the, at the, at the, I mean, the, the financials of um, the NMPC, their cost of sales, if you look at it, had gone up during COVID. Why has it gone up? If you look at 2019 versus um, 2020, uh, there's been a decline in cost of sales, yes. But when you look at it within the context that we are playing, the significant depreciation, I mean, the decline cannot be justified. Remember, during the lockdown, everybody, in fact, at a point in time, crude oil, in fact, people were paying, I mean, how will I put it now? People that want to sell crude oil were essentially paying people that actually store crude oil to actually take the crude oil off there. So cost of sales should actually have gone significantly down if you compare 2019 to 2020. That significant shift did not happen in Nigeria. If you look across the world and you look at the annuals of most IOCs and people playing in this sector, their cost of sales had gone down significantly. So what happened in Nigeria? That's the one. No, number two, if you look at the sales, selling and then their distribution expenses, it's ridiculous. The NMPC is spend, spending about 36 billion to actually sell and distribute their I mean, products. What are they doing? We have to move on to the next person, but no, no, no. You're, you've raised some very, very valid points as to why the NMPC's costs don't seem to be varying alongside the uh, um, development international markets. Uh, Omo Boy, the, my, my question, uh, building on what Phoenix and Samuel have said, is Buhari is supposed to be the petroleum minister, and he was sold as this man of integrity. So how could all these things be happening under his nose? Is it that he's not aware or he doesn't have the skill set to be able to manage the petroleum ministry? What, what is going on, my boy? Um, thank you, uh, uh, Michael. 
Atiku, uh, Samuel, and uh, Phoenix Agenda for the opportunity to be here again to discuss uh, some of these issues. And um, <laughs> the, quest the answer to the question is that Buhari, however it was sold, uh, is, uh, was marketing. Uh, Buhari essentially remains the same. He was the one as uh, Federal Minister of uh, Petroleum in the early 70s, supervised the setting up of a national parastatal to manage Nigeria's uh, 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 newfound uh, crude oil deposits as a corporation from Nigerian National Oil Company, NNOC, uh, transiting into National Corporation, NNPC. And the idea really was that this corporation will be able to represent the interest of the federation. When we talk about the federation, it's federal government and the constituent states and local governments, um, and manage effectively, efficiently the petroleum resources with its identified partners in order to maximize uh, revenue for the federation. And on that account, uh, MNPC went on to build uh, local distribution capacity, depots for internal distribution of petroleum refined products, and also went ahead to initiate refineries to basically convert crude to petroleum, uh, kerosene, diesel, and all of that kind of stuff in order to satisfy local and maybe export whatever it's, uh, is, is left. And in the 70s, when all of the ambitions came about, it, it was it was good to see. It was an example to, to the rest of the world. But very quickly, like everything else, things decayed. When expertise in uh, in that organizational affairs led, uh, you know, was basically uh, thrown out of the window, and uh, quota system and representation became uh, the driving mantra. Uh, as it was in all of federal agencies post-77 um, to make sure that uh, every session of the country was represented in positions of authority across all of this corporation. And from there on, it's been downhill since. But essentially, my, my answer to your question is that Buhari, as president and minister of petroleum, um, absolutely wants the decision. He wants to be the one that makes some kind of final decisions around contract signing. So NNPC is a contract signing organization. That's what they are. NNPC was something at some point. And by the time I got in there, I, I did my national youth service at the crude oil sales and marketing division, COSEM uh, in um, at Napins, which is the uh, NNPC unit that's responsible for managing the joint venture. By the time I got in there, it was already rotten, but at least there was some kind of, uh, <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, structure and all of that kind of uh, structure. Uh, people know you can tie people to jobs and all of that kind of stuff. But today, we know that NNPC spends about four hundred billion or so thereabouts on on manpower on people to basically run the organization. And what I say to the federation today and the constituent parts of the federation probably come to that later, is that NNPC is sucking you dry. For example, NNPC employs about 10,000 people and spends a billion dollars on them to manage contracts. What do they do? They manage joint venture relationship. NNPC has one uh, subsidiary, MPDC, that actually has a drilling rig. That is a go in there and try and drill. And they do about maybe 50,000 barrels a day. That is their capacity. That's all they do. Nothing else. Everything else is managing relationship. 
that other people actually physically drill the oil. They bring it out of the ground and MMPs is a portion, a portion of it, and then they try to sell it, undercut even their own uh, partners in order to get rid of their crude or whatever it is that they do in order to bring money to the Federation. And the states are waiting. All of the governors of the state, the governor of Ekiti State, of Ondo State, of River State, have no idea that before they get their monthly allocation from FARC, NMPC have already fed, fed fact on it. That's essentially what they are telling you. So NMPC is shortchanging the state and local government because they represent, as far as they are concerned, the federal government. So the federal minister of petroleum deprived the states of revenue solely needed for them to develop their state, keep people safe, and basically improve the life of Nigeria. So I ask the question, what is the point of the NNPC? It's no point. You can a management consultant. There's PwC. There's all of these management company. Basically, I can, I basically, as a management consultant or as a, you know, PwC has an oil and gas arm, I can pay them. I can pay those guys $10, 20000000 million a year. And they would do the job that NNPC is doing right now for $1 billion for their staff. We're not talking about the wastages and all of the other nonsense that they do. We're just talking about 10,000 people, absolutely redundant, feeding fat, not just on their salary. Their salary is a billion dollars, but they also suck at another $10 billion out of the industry, into their pockets. All of them feeding fat on the rest of Nigeria is in banditry and purgatory and penury. This is the legacy of not just Buhari, but this is the legacy of Nigerian National Oil Corporation, the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation, NMPC. So I understand completely why they would want to show the world today in very Taliban-like economy and <laughs> show you that they are making profit. You know, this is a Taliban corporation run by Taliban. It is, it is a low-cost season. They are fed and fed and fed on Nigerian patrimony. Now, they even want to make sure that that is completely gone from the states. And the states are there uh, looking after VAT. VAT is peanuts compared to what NFPC takes out of your mouth. So basically, the states have to demand. They have to ask the people they employ, because they employ the NFPC on their behalf to look after managing Nigerian petroleum interests. So if you are bringing in less than 20, about $20 billion a year to the economy or $15 billion, and it's costing you $10 billion to do it, we want to ask you why. And then who else can do it? I can do it. PwC can do it. EY can do it. We can do exactly the same thing, that they are spending uh, billions of dollars to service a year. It is ridiculous. In fact, it's a crime scene. It is absolutely mindless. What is the point of NMPC? No point. Absolutely no point. Thank you, my boy, uh, for your very forthright uh, comments. You said the there's no point to the NMPC, which which is interesting. I think that's an argument a number of people have made. But because our time is up, we have to move on to the next topic, which is the VAT battle that is still raging on between the various states and the federal government. Um, Phoenix, um, the last time we discussed the VAT issue at the, at the time, it was just River states that had gotten a court order uh, from the high court in Rivers. But since then, Lagos State has joined the battle 
and a number of other states seem to be making noises in favor. Whilst we, on the other hand, we have some opposing states, mainly in the north of Nigeria, who have been arguing that uh, it, it's an attempt by rivers and Lagos to deprive them of their resources. So firstly to, to uh, Phoenix, could you talk us through where we are? Because I understand that there's a, the Court of Appeal recently issued a judgment, but as with everything that is to do with Nigeria, there seems to be arguments about what the implication of the Court of Appeal's ruling is. So can you talk us through the issues, Phoenix? Thanks, Michael. Um, I mean, essentially where we are is uh, we, we have the Court of Appeal that has, right, I mean, this is what they do in Nigeria. They've, they've issued like an injunction on uh, the state governments and saying that they, they should revert to the status quo, which essentially means FRS continues to collect the VAT until the suit that the FRS has filed, the appeal that the FRS has filed has been addressed. Um, and so we wait to see how the state governments uh, respond. Of course, we know that uh, River State has passed their law, Lagos State has passed their law, and the Attorney General for Lagos State has actually uh, filed to be added to the River's case uh, as a co, I mean, I, I don't know what the legal term is, but they've asked to be to be added to it. Uh, we also know that Aquai Bomb is, is working on its own case. I learned that, uh, I think I read somewhere that, uh, is it Adamawa or, yeah, I think it's Adamawa as well is the first state in the North to also throw their hats in the ring in support of uh, states collecting VAT. So um, of course, this is not a battle that, uh, uh, that I mean, this is only just beginning as far as I'm concerned. And, and I mean, my view, we've discussed this, it's quite clearly that the states are well within their rights to do it. They have the legal backing to do it. This is not something that is on the exclusive list that they are precluded from, from addressing. I think from an economic perspective, they, they, I mean, absolutely should push for it and should have control. I've seen a lot of arguments back and forth. I mean, people have been taking different positions and some of them, some of the positions I've heard have been uh, downright ludicrous to me because I find that a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people see things as they are rather than as they could be in the sense that when I hear people telling, talking about, oh, um, collection efficiency, blah, blah, blah. I'm one who has always been supportive of having one, um, um, one entity to collect tax revenues across Nigeria. Yes, for, this, for the sake of um, cost of collection. Because I, I, while I believe very strongly um, that we should be a federation and each state should, should um, own its own, um, uh, have access to earn revenue from all economic activity in its in this in that state, be it uh, personal income tax, corporate income tax, withholding tax, VAT, name it. The the state should control it, and then con contribute something to the post that helps everyone. That that's my view. But I also know that we have thirty six states, and not maybe only three or four of them can necessarily build the infrastructure to do this effectively. So if, if the FIRS markets itself as a central collect, collecting entity that is paid a fee for helping to do this, being that they have the infrastructure, they've been doing this well, 
thanks to Ifeko, they seem to have, I'm talking about Ifeko Mogi now, who did all the work to, to build it into a reputable agency. I don't know how much has been destroyed by Fowler and the guy who's come after him. But if they can sell that to the states and be a collection agency, but with the but with payments directly to the state, then that's a viable thing. But you cannot use that as a fact to derail the conversation on VAT, which is a conversation on fiscal restructuring. You cannot tell me that because some people, some states are not viable or some states will, will suffer, then I mean this action that is being taken by by Wiki and, and also by um, Sonwulu is, is going to create issues. Some have also said it creates complications for, for companies and, and having different rates or different regimes. I'm sorry, we have different entities. I mean, all states are required to collect personal income tax. And so if you're a company operating across the Federation, it means that you are paying personal income tax to different state authorities today. So what will change if you're now going to be paying VAT to different authorities. So for me, the, I mean, people model up things and, and don't see that you only need, I mean, no one knew how big the telecoms was going to be in Nigeria at the time when they were selling licenses in, in 2001. Now we see 20 years later, how massive it's been. Change comes when there's a shift. If you make, if you correct things and you say that, yes, states own VAT, let each state go back to the drawing board. Now, knowing that they have their own fiscal powers, that they can do that, you will now see the efficiency come out because now they have the power in their hands. They now need to make sure that there's an enabling environment for that to work. So for me, that, that has to be what the conversation is about. It cannot be about where we are today with all the inefficiencies, which are largely created by the sharing culture that we have with everyone trooping to Abuja every month to, with their cap in hand to collect money. Of course, it doesn't incentivize anything for them to create. But when you then say, oh, there's no more sharing anymore. You're on your own. You are in your state. Collect the VAT, collect whatever you can collect in your state. Then you will see people who work. I remember when, when, when um, Lagos State started their drive for, for uh, personal income tax, that has become huge today and everybody is celebrating that IGR, Lagos State does more IGR than a number of states. But it wasn't like that in 1999. It wasn't even like that in 2003. It took some work and a focus to build that efficiency and to build that, that capability to collect, even though it was a low hanging fruit for, for Lagos State. So other states will find their way to do, to do what is required to be done. So I, I think that a lot of states, particularly those in the, in the South, um, and I don't want to make this a North-South thing because I believe every state in Nigeria should see the possibilities of what can happen with having more control and having more capacity to build economic realities in their states. Or at least the ones that it comes naturally to should see this and embrace this and join just as they've joined uh, forces together on the case against the federal government on uh, on stamp duty, they need to join forces on this. And then we begin to see the Rolling Stone gather moss that takes us to that restructuring we believe is the only way for Nigeria to exist together. Without that, we, we, we will not go anywhere. So that's, that's my take. That's where we are. 
and uh, we'll see how, how things progress and, and evolve. Thank you, uh, Phoenix. Uh, you've set out the, you've given us the background, but also set out the arguments for why uh, this VAT move might be helpful to the states. But to Sam Wall, there's something I'm, I'm trying to pin down. Everybody seems to be saying it's obvious that the Constitution does not empower the federal government to collect VAT. So why did nobody say anything? I mean, we've had numerous attorneys general in, in office since 1999. And how come none of them gave legal advice to say, look, it's illegal for us to be taking this tax? How, how did it not come up until now, uh, Samuel? Uh, yeah, Michael, I think it came up. It's, uh, it's been a topical issue uh, that has actually pitched the states against the federal government historically. Uh, just for context, in 2012-2013, uh, the fascist government in Lagos actually took the federal government to court, but they took them directly to the Supreme Court. And what they said was that the federal government, in fact, the, the, the argument was simple, that the National Assembly cannot legislate on VAT. And that was the argument. And then the Lagos state government then set up sales tax in its state pending the ruling of the Supreme Court. But the case was dismissed, not on the logic of any argument, but on technicalities, that um, the Lagos state government cannot bring the federal government directly to the Supreme Court. That is an abuse of, um, uh, I'll call it abuse of the court process that it's the federation, in essence, that can actually drag the federal government to court on that matter. And of course, that was in 2014 when the judgment came in. Remember in 2014, the whole APC thing was happening. So it made no, the political argument won then. So Lagos State would have actually followed up, essentially do what River State did now to actually stop the Federal Inland Revenue Service from collecting VAT in Lagos State. Uh, but because it was the, poli the political atmosphere was buzzing, of course, uh, the people in Lagos State want to take over the center. So those things were jettisoned. Uh, until recently, uh, when River State actually took the bull by the arm. Uh, that said, uh, recall it was Nigeria's historically used sales tax. It was the Babangida government that came up with, um, I'll call it the VAT. And essentially, why they designed, why we transited from sales tax to VAT is actually to ensure that states were productive. Remember, it was during the SAP era. And if you look at the SAP document itself, I think it laid out those arguments that people are now using against <laughs> the River State Judgment Now, The reason why value-added tax was actually um, uh, pushed up and then we eradicated the sales tax is the fact that anywhere value is added, those, I mean, that state should be able to get something. I think that has been the argument. So it's been a contextual issue that been, has been with us since um, 2000, uh, but here we are today. Uh, uh, it's interesting. And then just to add more to that, I think the whole noise, uh, if you look closely, I think the Nigerian Bureau of Statistics 
2017, started publishing information on, on where those VAT actually comes from. So this big argument that people are throwing around, saying that, oh, uh, headquarter effect and all those things, hold absolutely no water. The truth is that uh, some very few states are going to bend. The truth is that some very few states have been subsidizing some other state for years. And look at Lagos now. If you come into Lagos and you zoom in on Lagos, Lagos is essentially a very massive slum. The truth is that the people of Lagos that are the ones paying salaries uh, of most government workers across board, especially for the less valuable ones. I think that's one. The number two also, let me shock you with this. If you're a state governor and then peradventure you were able to mobilize or you go ahead to borrow money, and that doesn't borrow money, you decide to award contract to build maybe infrastructure in your state, 200 billion. Uh, yeah, you're going to pay VAT of about 14, 15 billion. Remember, you're paying 15 billion VAT. Your contractor, guess where the VAT is here? That money is actually shared evenly across, um, across the federation. So for borrowing money, states like Lagos, they go to borrow money. Or whether you're in Zamfara, you go and borrow money and then you spend on um, capital expenditure. The truth is that you're actually moving that money across to other states, which makes absolutely no economic sense. I think let me pause here and allow uh, another talk. Thank you, Samuel. It's very interesting because I, I, I suspect that the government who fought at the time, uh, who took the federal government to Supreme Court, are the APC wing or the ACN wing of the APC who are now in power. So it's, it's quite interesting that that same government is now the government opposing the VAT, when in fact they were the ones that started the court case at the time, arguing that VAT was not within the domain of the federal government. But on to real or boy, um, there have been a lot of speculation on, on in, in the political space that whilst Lagos State has joined rivers in fighting this VAT battle, there is a lot of commentary to the effect that Bola Tinubu might negotiate away this VAT in exchange for Buhari supporting him for the presidency. Do you think there's any truth to that argument? Oh boy. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't put anything past politicians, right? Okay, Wiki may have started something and Lagos State decides to join. Uh, it becomes a bigger... Uh, uh, a lot of people will see that for what it is, that uh, it is a, it's a way to take out food from the mouth of some of the states uh, in, uh, who are less productive. Uh, and let's face it, 90% of the states in Nigeria are very unproductive. Uh, even the ones that we say are productive are absolutely uh, you know, atrocious in first of all, uh, uh, generating the revenue and then capturing it and then spending it. Um, so politically, I don't put anything past uh, the Jagaband of Borgu, um, who, who will do anything uh, to really uh, be in the conversation, uh, especially as he faces, he faces an uphill battle against uh, uh, the de facto prime minister, uh, Malami the Anthony General of Nigeria today, who is uh, leading the, uh, the Talibanization of the Nigerian state and society and uh, now the economy uh, across all board. And I'll tell you why that is. Uh, Malami has designs and um, his design, his deluded designs, like everybody who has ever occupied that uh, 
office that is occupying, uh, they think they they have uh, a capacity to to go beyond where really politically they 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 actually are. And if you look at if you look at the way he has engaged in and carried on since the uh, passing of uh, the former chief of staff Abba Kiari, he has aligned himself. Uh, particularly, he has gained the confidence of the president, and the president asked his opinion as the attorney general on party matters, on the economy, and everything else. And the Federal Executive Council is also sort of skewed in the way that he takes an outsized role with the very demure and differential uh, role that the uh, Minister of Finance, uh, uh, Madam Amina, makes in that in in this current government and the vice president absolutely is uh, is is <laughs> is fasting i think he's fasting most of the time so he is absolutely disregarded by the attorney general he is of no consequence to the attorney general at all in any of his mad decision making take the issue of vat for example uh, this vat matter came up who appealed it to the appeal court is the attorney general is it the minister of finance was she taking the lead role no, was the FIRS? Okay, if FIRS was doing it as a federal agency, they need to take advice from the Attorney General. Did they go to the National Economic Council? No, the National Economic Council is, hired by, is headed by the Vice President, Oshimbajo. Did they discuss it? Absolutely not. Was there even a weekly executive council to, to look at the implications of the High Court judgment? Not, nothing like that. Nothing was reported. That, but yet, FIRS went ahead uh, with the authority of the Attorney General, got the Attorney General to basically make an appeal, an appeal, an appeal, uh, appeal court decision that is very curious in itself to uh, stay to the status quo um, in a case that will never come up or take a hearing in the Supreme Court, not in the lifetime of this government. So the issues are very clear. The VAT cases that the state are fighting are the first step in really unraveling the centralization of the Nigerian state. We are a federation, but we don't act like it. We act like a unitary system of government where the center decides what happens. And we're talking about the NMPC just now. Now, mind you, the Antony General is actually also in the thick of things there. So he's the one that decides that these are contracts, acceptable contracts, and whatever is acceptable or not acceptable. Um, the, the reversal of uh, uh, previously uh, declared uh, losses uh, now considered as assets. All of those were done on the advice of the Attorney General. So the NMPC group, uh, the Kiari, the MD, is in cahoots with the Attorney General of the Federation, Malami, uh, in order to advise rightly or wrongly Buhari, who really, as far whatever is told by the Attorney General, seems to be what what happens. So everything is connected and everything is linked. But I think that if the states have started on the basis of uh, uh, trying to uh, to basically write the 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 the, the terrain, right? The, uh, you know, reverses all of the all of the losses that the states have have, have endured in terms of uh, being part of the federation by going on this VAT issue. I think they should take a step further and basically seek for the dissolution of NMPC. Now that we have passed PIB, we have passed PIB. If we have to have a national corporation, that should be there should be a brand new corporation set up. People who can take shares in it should take shares in it and invest in the oil sector. And if that is not done, if they go, if if they stay with the small the small potatoes, the really big fish, NMPC, will continue to starve 
the states of funds. And they, we cannot have that. And unfortunately, that is the situation that we have. And Anthony General is at the center of it. And the state governors need to sort of concentrate their fire, firepower in the direction of their enemy and stop this Talibanization of the Nigerian state, society, and economy. Thank you. Thank you, really, my boy, for talking to us about the, uh, the political intricacies in the Nigerian government. But on to our final topic, which is end SARS. Um, on the, in October 2020, we had the massacre of young, innocent Nigerians in Lekki, whose only crime in the eyes of the Buhari government was protesting against police brutality. Buhari has said they were trying to remove him from office, but the, the truth is, even if they were, it's their democratic right to demand his resignation. There was no justification on earth to, to murder innocent young Nigerians. Uh, a panel of inquiry is still ongoing, but uh, the a forensic expert has tendered their evidence to the inquiry. The forensic agency was called Senitel or Sentinel. And they said, based on their findings, there is evidence that the Nigerian army did open fire with live bullets and kill innocent people. So firstly, to uh, Phoenix, um, although it seemed obvious to everybody that the Nigerian army did uh, shoot at innocent people, why is this testimony, why, why is this testimony therefore a bombshell, uh, Phoenix? Well, maybe it's a bombshell to to people who uh, who are still of the frame of mind that they can afford to give the Nigerian army benefit of doubt. I mean, we've seen we, anyone who's followed and knows their antecedents knew quite rightly, especially with the overwhelming evidence, with the with the videos we saw live, with the with uh, DJ switches live on on the, on the day. Knew that. I mean, there was no point to to even give, being doubtful about the fact that the Nigerian army rocked up and opened fire on um, unarmed civilians who were only protesting their right not to be killed. And you know, for me, it's been a year of arguments, debates with fellow Nigerians who. You know, it, it goes back to the point that Atiku made earlier about Buhari having divided Nigeria. I don't think at any point in our history have we been as divided, where they are clear, even on things that are clearly, that the right and wrong is clear, you find people taking absurd positions and you're like, I don't get it. What, what, I mean, but then by the time you look at their timelines or you look at their history of having been discussing with them because this has also happened in whatsapp groups that and i mean with friends or people that one has gone to school with and you clearly see that oh, okay this one obviously voted for Buhari in 2015 or continues to hold the apc in in good light and therefore will take positions that are, are necessarily pro-government even on issues that are clear that the government has done an egregious wrong and on this particular one, it, it has done my head in, I mean, to the extent that, I mean, people will be defending and justifying. And then, you know, telling you, oh, where are the people? Where are the bodies? Where are they? But, but, I mean, I held st steadfast in the fact that 
they can try for as long as they want, but the truth will come out. It, it's, I mean, we, we've been seeing successively people telling their stories, people who survived. I mean, there was, I think a month ago, there was some guy who had just come out of, you know, um, having survived bullet wounds and was now able to speak. We're now seeing the forensic expert tell us that all the all the shells that he saw there could be traced back to Nigerian Army and even the blanks that the Nigerian Army were claiming uh, that they fired, that none of it shows up in the records of the Nigerian Army because when the, when, when military buys uh, equipment, it's, it's listed, it's registered, so you can trace um, back to their record. So clearly, the Nigerian Army co committed this, this dastardly act and almost a year now, it's going to be a year in what, just a little over a month, nobody has been held to account. Instead, Buhari decided to protect um, the people who could have possibly given the order by making uh, Buratai, for instance, an ambassador, so that, I mean, if this, for instance, becomes very clear and, and foolproof, he could not be held to account, but they, they, I mean, that day will come. I mean, I've been on this, people are on, on this, we're just waiting for this to just, you know, take its course and be fully documented. And then we take it to the next level and make sure that from Buhari down, there must be people, there must be a price to pay for such, uh, for such uh, actions, especially in a democracy especially for what people were fighting for and for what people are still fighting for. I mean, it's, it's beyond the pale. I mean, it's, you know, I, I, and the fact that even the international bodies, you know, the foreign governments have not sanctioned or held uh, government or certain officials to account, you know, call them out, refuse them visas, you know, make them pariahs. That, that that has to happen because where where in this world do you it's only in um team pot dictatorships in 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 places where i mean these things happen that you turn your own soldiers on your civilians not even because they were being you know rowdy or doing something wrong till tomorrow people still people still hold um uh, China to the light on Tiananmen, uh, Tiananmen Square. We remember, um, I forget now what, 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 is it Tahrir Square or what, what's that square in Egypt also called that brought down, um, what's his name? This guy, this their former president, I forget his name now, Mubarak's regime. So, the, I mean, it, it, it's unheard of. So for, for, for them to have survived this long also points to the division, to the fact that we as Nigerians could not come together on something this egregious and instead be turned it into a, into a partisan issue where people were supporting government despite there was overwhelming proof that they had done this so, something so wrong. I hope that as, it, as these things come to light, that these people will, will still find some humanity to walk back all the nonsense that they've been saying and doing over the last year and then join forces 
as we come up on that first year anniversary, join forces with the fellow Nigerians to hold this government, to hold the Nigerian army um, leadership, past and present, particularly this Buratai guy, and we must make sure he remembers so that nobody does it again. But we cannot do that unless we all come back, come together. And that's that's where we are feeling as Nigerians. Thank you very much, uh, Phoenix. You've raised a number of issues, but there's one in particular I want uh, Samuel to address. Um, Samuel, in your view, why have the international community not taking a hard line on the Buhari government. Um, Britain and America in particular seem to still have a cozy relationship with him despite the public evidence of the fact that people were murdered and by the Nigerian army and he is the commander in chief. I know the US seemed to issue a statement but it seems to be business as usual in terms of their diplomatic relationship. So why, why is this happening, uh, Samuel? I think it's strange um, uh, if you if you if you actually try to read uh, the minds of uh, how will I call it now of of course Nigeria's two biggest uh, how will I call it now influential foreign body that is the British government and of course by extension the American government. I think one big issue had been, I think it's more of an economic issue. Um, they see what China is doing in Nigeria. I think I've been in forums where there's been questions that have been asked about that. And so the US actually trying to replicate the system so that they remain relevant. I think that's one big issue. Uh, I think the second point has always been how powerful a young people. Uh, and um, uh, when do we begin to actually uh, use our collective agency as people to actually influence, um, I'll call it, I, I typically will call them foreign bodies. Uh, so that's been the biggest topical issue that we've not really answered as young people. So when people look at Nigeria uh, from outside, uh, what they see is, I'll call it a strong government and weak people. And as such, they would rather go talk to government, not minding uh, the people themselves. And I can mention instances where that has happened. I mean, it's shocking that, I mean, aside from what happened in October 10, um, if you remember, if you recall very well in Kaduna, we had massive massacre going on there. People were buried, atrocities committed. Nobody was held. In fact, till today, nobody was. In fact, they incarcerated somebody for years, uh, killed his children and do all those kinds of things. And then of course the international, I'll call them foreign bodies actually turned the blind eye. So one thing there is more of the influence of China, of course, in the question, and we see coups already emanating and coming out in Africa. We can see what happened in Uganda, almost similar thing happened. So uh, looking at those foreign bodies as a watchdog, I think that era seems to be fading away fast. And that calls to question, and essentially Phoenix did mention that, how do we begin to uh, build our own lobby power 
to actually, especially as people, as, as essentially as young people, to begin to shift and force the hand of foreign bodies to begin to look at the Nigerian people as the anchor point of foreign policy design and not the government itself. As it we are, and as we look at it closely, if you look at it closely, uh, the country is on it. It's, a, it's actually very, very divided. In fact, if you go on, I mean, it's shocking that you go on. I mean, people are streaming things on li life, and some people still come on social media to tell you it's a lie. What kind of technology is that? How do you do real time video? How do you manipulate? How do you, what kind of um, software can you use to actually manipulate real life events? It's so strange that we've gotten to that point. And I think it calls to question, again, how people perceive Nigeria. So my, 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 my conclusion here is simple. I think it's young people needs to, uh, we need to come together as people. Number one, we need to direct our guns, of course. When I mean gun, I'm talking literally. I'm not talking about uh, before, the, before the government, so you are trying to use guns and all those kind of things. We need to direct our wars essentially at the foreign bodies themselves. Uh, we need to bring them to question. I like the fact that, of course, in the UK, uh, young people in the UK seems to use their legislators to actually skip at least to a particular degree, but not that much happened in the US. So we're expecting things like that to happen. And then by extension, hopefully, uh, if that happens and then foreign bodies begin to see people as very, very powerful, of course, they are going to tailor, tailor their tailor their it's of course around that. And just to end, FCD, right? The UK government, the finance, of course, if you go to government today, uh, they pay salaries of a lot of people. They still train. They are, I'm sure they are organizing one training or the other for the Nigerian military as we speak now. Uh, they are organizing one kind of training or the other for the Nigerian police and all those things like that, irrespective of what has happened. The truth is that we really know who they're accountable. The truth is that if you turn the guns against them and you say, oh, it's the UK government, that is actually fueling some of these issues. Of course, they are going to take it serious. I think that has not happened in terms of how we, how we design our narrative. I think we need to take it beyond that. Thank you, Samuel. I do agree that the US government and the UK government offer a lot of uh, training and services to, to the Nigerian authorities. So perhaps they should cut some of those as, a expression of, as an expression of their displeasure. But finally, to read on my boy, uh, the, the question for you is, this government has a lot of people who prior to joining or getting appointments were well-known human rights activists or well-known constitutional lawyers, the likes of Vice President Sibanjo, uh, Governor Kaude Fayemi, who was a minister and is now a prominent APC governor and leader of the APC Governors Forum. Um, oh boy, how do you think they, they reconcile their previous roles with being part of a government that partook or or, or implemented or, or actually committed a massacre against innocent citizens on the way? Uh, they have no defense. Um, they are part of a government that, uh, that uh, snuffed out the life of lives of young Nigerians on camera. Uh, committed. Uh, oh, boy, your volume is a bit low. I think you're away from the mic. Oh, um, just uh, bear with me one second. Okay, is that better? Is that any better? Sorry about that. Um, no. Yes, I'm sorry about the volume. Can you hear me okay? 
It's still a bit low, but uh, if this is the highest you can do, then it's fine. All right, okay. I'm just going to try and raise my voice because I don't know what happened. I think I had a call come in and uh, just disrupted uh, the Zoom call. I'm using my phone. So I apologize. Um, I'm just going to quickly say the, the, gov the all of these so-called APC progressive governors, Kayode fire me, and even the vice president of Nigeria, who was supposed to be the conscience of this government, uh, a certain redeemed pastor uh, called Professor uh, Yemio Shibanjo is absolutely, it's a disgrace. It's, it's disgraceful what happened on 20th of October, 2020. Um, what was very clear before our eyes was that the government of Nigeria, the government of Nigeria authorized Nigerian military to fire live ammunition against Nigerian citizens protesting, uh, peaceful protest, no violence at Leki Tollgate, and uh, they tried to hide it. Uh, one of the ministers, former governor of Lagos State, came down there to demonstrate uh, some uh, uh, macabre Nollywood dance, looking, discovering some kind of a hidden camera. But we find out also that now through forensics uh, examination, that the Lekki Tollgate Management, the concession company, LCC, switched the video uh, feed at Lekki Tollgate from automatic recording to manual recording in order to doctor the evidence of the live execution of young Nigerians. Um, this crime is a crime for the ages. And like Finney said earlier, you know, somebody will be held accountable. Some people are going to be held accountable. Uh, today, Malami is the Attorney General of Nigeria. He is the Minister of Injustice. He is supposed to go to the bottom of that. He is supposed to put military officers on trial. He is supposed to uh, question and indict the government of Lagos State, the management of that company, LCC, and everybody who partook in this massacre. But of course, he is the Attorney General, and he is uh, basically uh, supervising and superintending over uh, the injustice that is being perpetrated uh, in Nigeria. But I am very sorry uh, to all the people who died and all the people who lost their lives as a result of this action by government. But at the end of the day, justice will be served. If not today, tomorrow, there's no a time limitation in which this crime will not go punished. It will not go unpunished. Uh, the Nigerian people have seen the international community, when we talk about Britain and America, we know at a the time their State Department, their, their foreign services are led by very corrupt people. The United Kingdom is under the grip of a satanic and very dirty uh, government led by Boris Johnson. The Tories in the United Kingdom are a stain on humanity. Uh, Joe Biden has come in as the President of the United States. Hopefully, uh, the pre Vice President Kamala Harris and the Secretary of State we begin to revisit all of the uh, stuff that Trump overlooked. But let's not get it twisted. The West basically look at all Nigerians the same, whether military, civilian, rich, and poor. We are all the same to them. Uh, we cannot depend on them for our salvation. But at the end of the day, uh, believe me, all of these people who pretend to have uh, progressive ideals in Nigeria, they are as corrupt as they can be. They are part of the cover-up, and all of them, there will be a maxi trial. This is not going to go unpunished. There will be a time when the blood of those innocent people with Nigerian flags on their hand 
waving and demanding for change, demanding for an end to police corruption, police brutality. They were mowed and they were called, somebody called the military. The military drove from Bonicam. They went there in convoy and let out volleys of shots into the bodies of young Nigerians. That is the issue. The forensics does not tell us anything different than we thought originally. All of the people that defended that illegality, may they meet the same fate. All of the people that stood up and said that NSAS was a, was a con, that it did not happen, may Nigerian army and bandits pump bullets into their bodies, may they receive double of what the victims received. All the victims that were disappeared, all the bodies that were not recognized, may the God of heaven visit vengeance upon those people who caused it, who supported it, and to pretend that it didn't happen. That is my verdict. This is, a, this is an event that radicalized me. This is an event that turned me against the authorities of Nigeria. I am not in any way pro the authorities. I, I abhor them, I deplore them, and I'm thoroughly enraged by what happened on the 20th of October, 2020. May the souls of those executed, may they rest in peace. God is the judge, and God will judge all of them accordingly. Amen. Thank you, Rila, my boy. On the plus side, I do agree that uh, justice should be served. Um, but with regards to Boris Johnson, uh, I'm not sure I'd, I'd agree that Boris Johnson is satanic. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think Boris is not a... Uh, you know, my boy, that's <laughs> I would not describe my no, Boris. I don't believe your lovely Tories. Your lovely yeah. Tories, the bastard of conservatism, can be satanic. Boris Johnson leads a satanic government. That's what I think. Because a government oh, yeah. that cannot care for children, that cannot care for the elderly, that cannot care for people dying, that cannot even reprimand an evil Buhari. Who does it serve? It says Moloch. They are all children of Moloch. That's my conclusion. Um, sorry. Yes, your, your volume was quite low, so I don't think uh, people could hear. But, uh, but our time is up. So first of all, I must thank you, uh, Pastor, my boy. And thank you, uh, Samuel. And then I thank you, Phoenix, for co-hosting with me. And then I thank you to our listeners for always taking time out to give us helpful feedback. But until the same time next week, I say have a fantastic seven days to everyone. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Lomoboy and Atiku, for joining us. Thank you, listeners, for always sticking by us. Uh, we, we had a whole topic on it, so I don't need to repeat it. But as we, as we get towards the anniversary, Let's keep all those people lost in mind. And, and to Rila Moboy's point, justice will be served. Thank you, everyone, and have a great week. <laughs>